As I was getting ready to come up here this morning, I saw a friend of mine, uh, Tim, is, is here. And, and Tim calls me occasionally. And when he calls me, I always try to take his call. Because if I ever let it roll over, the message he typically leaves me is something to the effect that he's in jail. This was his one phone call. <laughs> and he really appreciates my Christian brotherhood and the fact that I would take that call and help him in his moment of need. Good to have you here, Tim. Glad you're not in jail this morning. But I tell you that uh, uh, by way of introduction this morning because we are talking this morning in part two of Paul's view of Scripture. And there aren't many things I put higher than Tim's phone calls to me. There are a few, including those of my family. But I will tell you, Scripture is... is um, I, th there's not anything I can say. I can't pull Scripture away from the Lord because it's one of the ways I know the Lord. There's nothing in my life that means to me what Scripture does. And so it's an honor before God to get to stand up this morning and speak to you about it. I grew up in a church that was very much like this church in the sense that our preachers, my childhood preachers, were fervently into the Word of God. Did you notice this morning how Pastor Fleming not only preached from the Word, but was quoting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture as he danced throughout the Bible to illustrate his points and, and, and to make real to us the message he was trying to convey. And I was touched and I was sitting there as I was listening, thinking about the preachers I've been blessed to grow up under when I was a small kid. I've got, uh, Sarah is in here today. She's our nine-year-old. Um, but I see, I met, uh, Nancy's got some nieces that I met who were age 13 on down. When I was a young kid, I sat at the, the, in the chairs and listened to these men who would preach. And they preached from the Bible. They cared about the Bible. They cared about what the Word of God said. And, and I can remember when I was in eighth grade, we had a summer intern. I don't know where he is today. I've lost track of him since ninth grade. But his name was Steve Robinson. And Steve was um, a, a Bible major at Lubbock Christian College. And he was taking a Greek class and working at our church as a summer intern. And I got to spend some time with him. And he took it upon himself to teach me as a little eighth grade boy the Greek alphabet and a couple of really neat things that are, exist in the Greek as we read the Greek New Testament. And it stirred up in me a, a great love for the languages that I think propelled me forward. A, a combination between preachers preaching the word and, and a, a mentor delving into the languages I decided that I wanted more than anything else to study Greek and Hebrew so that I might get just a little bit closer to the Word of God as God revealed it in, in written form through history. And so I was honored to do that. And it was, it was over time that I learned to read the Greek New Testament, uh, 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 not as well as I'd like, certainly, but, but learned enough dexterity to where I could realize how little I knew. Um, 
And, and it, it's fun for me today. I, I've brought my Greek New Testament as Pastor Fleming's been teaching through Luke. Uh, he puts the, the English up on the, the board, so I have what's called a pony. Um, if you ever studied Greek or Hebrew, we call them ponies. It's, it's something that helps you get where you need to go. Teachers don't often appreciate the fact that you use a pony. Uh, as I found out in school one day when I was studying Hebrew under Professor Clyde Miller. And uh, the first couple of years of Hebrew, there were lots of people in the class. But by the time I was in my third and fourth year of Hebrew, there was only one. And it was me because nobody else wanted to do it. And Professor Miller, God bless his heart, he, uh, he would still do a seating chart. I'm not joking. He would come in the first day of class and he had this habit of looking over his glasses. And he didn't dip snuff, but he talked like he did. He talked like he had some snuff right there. And he'd look and he'd say, well, Mark, it looks like it's just you. I think you need to figure out where you're going to sit because I got to fill out the seating chart. And normally, when you take these advanced level courses in foreign languages like this, what our professors would do, like one term I, I took 1 Corinthians for my Greek class, and, and we just read 1 Corinthians, and what the professor would do is he'd say, okay, prepare chapter 1 for this next class session, and there'd be 20 kids in there, and, and he'd say, okay, Gary, you start with verse 1, and Gary would read it in the Greek and then translate it and get peppered by questions. Okay, what's this verb tense? How do they form it? Well, that works fine if there are 20 kids in the class. You do your verse, and then you just kind of... And if you haven't been called on yet, while Gary's doing verse 1, you're doing verse 2 just to make sure you've still got it. But when you've got Mad Dog Miller all by yourself, <laughs> and he says, I took him for Psalms. And he, he says, okay, let's prepare Psalm 42 and 43. Well, the whole hour plus, it's start. And it's just, and, and it was grueling. It would take hours to prepare. And one time I was a little short on preparing. So I used a pony. What I did is I was having struggles with a verb in one of the verses. So I took out the Revised Standard Version. And I looked up and I said, oh, that's how they translated it. Yeah, I think that sort of makes sense. And I put it in my memory bank. And so I'm going through, and, and sure enough, I get to that verse, and he says to me, he says, now, that's a very interesting translation. How did you get that from the verb? And I said, well, you know, it's an interesting question. <laughs> it's when you sit there, you don't, you know, generally we don't like to lie anyway, right? But especially when you're talking about God's word as part of your degree, okay? So you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to lie. And I said, you're sitting there, you say, well, you know, it's, it's a, this is a challenging verb. And he looks at me and he says, can I make a suggestion on how you got there? And I said, yes, please. He said, you use the revised standard version. I looked down and I said, yeah, it's, it's coming back to me. I believe I did. <laughs> he, said, he said to me, he said, they're wrong. And I said, you know, it, it's occurring to me that they probably are right now. Um, 
but I love studying the Old Testament in Hebrew and I love studying the New Testament in Greek and those are the languages they were written in by and large there's a little changes in that but but that generally is true and so last week as we started and laid a foundation for understanding Paul's view of Scripture I closed the class with three teasing questions I said we've got some problems when Paul quotes the Old Testament you can read his Old Testament quote and go back to the Old Testament and the quote doesn't always match up. It's like he misquotes. He said, what is going on there? That's something we'll talk about today. A second thing we'll talk about is there are times where Paul seems to be quoting scripture, but it's not in our scripture. We can't find it. Or if we do find it, it's so drastically different that you feel bad saying that's what Paul was quoting. So what do we do with these perplexing problems? Then there's a third wonderful area to study about some very surprising interpretations Paul puts on some Old Testament scriptures. And that's one that we tease you about even further because we won't get to that until next week. We'll look at these first two, though, this week. And to do this, we need to go back a little bit in review, not too much, but, but let's make sure we all have the same foundation before we start framing our house today. <clears throat> so last week we built a foundation, and we made a couple of points. And here they are succinctly. First, Paul did not write in 21st century conventions. He didn't. We should not read Paul and expect that Paul would write the way we do. He didn't use our grammar. He didn't use our punctuation. He didn't use our, our uh, uh, sentence conventions of subject, uh, verb. Uh, uh, he, he did not write the way we write. And we need to remember that. The picture we found of Val by Valentine de Bologna, which I teased was full of Bologna, because he painted this of Paul writing his letters. He painted it in the 1600s, but he's got books on the table. Paul didn't have books. Books were not invented at the time of Paul. Paul had scrolls. And we talked about this last week, and I decided I could do my own painting. I could update Valentine de, Valentine de Bologna with a Mark de Lanier. It's as if we say, this is Paul writing his Gospels. He, he didn't have a cut and paste option on his word processor. Okay, it's just not there. So Paul, we, we can't think like 21st century writers when we ask the questions we're going to be asking today. We need to try and think like Paul. God chose Paul in Paul's day and in Paul's culture to write this portion of God's story. And we need to respect God's decision and understand it that way. Another point we made last week is that, that Paul writes, Scripture is inspired or breathed by God. It's God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. And, and that, that phrase, God-breathed, harkens back to the way God breathed life into man and made man a living being. And that's important because the fact that Paul says the scriptures God breathes tells us two different things. It tells us, first of all, that it came from God. Scripture may be by the pen of Paul and others. 
and, and actually Paul probably dictated his letters. So maybe by the voice of Paul and the pen of his secretary or Amuno Rush, whatever it's called. Um, but, but it's God that's the source. But the fact that Scripture is God-breathed means more than God being the source. It also means that, that Scripture's filled with life and vitality, just as man was when God breathed into man. If God does not breathe forth these Scriptures, all this is is a collection of words and letters. But it's the fact that God breathed into this that sets this book apart from any other book you own. This has the life and vitality of God's breath. And that's the point Paul's making. We also made the point last week in foundation that God chose Paul to write Paul's words under God's divine influence. This is the point I was alluding to a moment ago. Paul was not a mere dictaphone that was merely receiving dictation from God. Nor did God create scripture by burying it on Hill Cumorah in Palmyra, New York for an angel to translate to Joseph Smith. God produced his word, the holy writings and scriptures through the device of human beings. And so when Paul writes, Paul, under divine influence, is writing Paul's thoughts and Paul's words. And we need to recognize that aspect as well as the aspect of divine influence. So Paul expresses Paul's emotions in his writings. Look at the Philippians 4 passage. I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. I rejoiced greatly. He's writing about his emotions. He writes about his own concerns. He says, I thought it's necessary I send Timothy to you. And he tells that to the church at Philippi as well. Okay, I, you know, you, Epaphroditus, y'all are, uh, uh, you know, Yodia and Syntyche are fussing and, and, and I, I've just, we've got to sort through this. And so I thought it necessary. You see, Paul writes about Paul's concerns under God's influence where God's producing Holy Scripture for the church. Paul writes about Paul's plans. Paul tells Philemon to prepare a guest room for me. I'm trusting through your prayers that I'm going to get to come visit soon. You know, these are the plans of Paul being written about that we have as Holy Scripture. So we need to remember that God chose Paul. This does not remove God from the equation. This is the majestic, majesty of God. What was the song we sang this morning? How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. This is not just something that a couple of people got together and wrote. God spans a thousand years with scores of different people used to put together a message that lives for eternity, that tells the story of who we are, why we are, where we're from, and where and how we are going. And it's a miraculous thing. Scripture, we discussed last week, 
Paul says, is God's word for the right time. Paul turned to Scripture. Paul says, hey, if Jew and, and, and Greek are alike, if Jew and Gentile are the same, what's the advantage to being a Jew? He says, there was a huge advantage. The Jews got the oracles of God. They knew where to go for the answers. The Greeks might try and go to the oracle at Delphi, wasteful though their time might be, but the Jews knew the answers to their problems and their questions were here. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. We talked last week that Paul says also Scripture is a source of hope and instruction. It is Scripture that bears witness to Jesus of Galilee. The, the hope and instruction we got from Pastor Fleming's sermon this morning came from Luke chapter 8. It was attested to in the Scriptures. Paul says whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We talked last week that Paul probably had very minimal access to a full Old Testament. And I used this picture and someone came up to me afterwards and said, what is that? So I didn't explain it. That fellow right there, he's carrying one Torah scroll. Now imagine trying to lug 40 of those around on your mission trip. He didn't have a pick-em-up to put him in. So Paul did not have a, a, a full wealth of the scriptures with him. He probably kept some. But Paul had his scriptures in his mind. You know, this man quotes 93 passages. And understand, those are what we today call quotations. He alludes to and uses Old Testament language hundreds of times in addition to those 93. He thinks the Word of God the way we think English. My wife learned Spanish so well that living in Argentina, she tells me, she reached a point where she dreamt in Spanish. Where... You know, it's just, that's how I want to be with the Word of God. I want the Bible in my mind and in my heart so much that when, when I think, I want my words laced with the Word of God. Because that's the, that, that, that ought to be the foreign language we really want. We talked last week about two ways Paul used the Old Testament. He would use the Old Testament to prove his points, if I can use debater-esque language or lawyer-esque language. But more than that, Paul would use the Old Testament to explain his points. Most of the points didn't need proof. The people were accepting what Paul was saying. The points needed explanation. And so Paul would use the Old Testament to help explain what he's trying to communicate. We have this 21st century science mind, and so we tend anytime someone's quoting, oh yeah, here's his proof right here. Well, he wasn't trying to prove it most times. Occasionally he was. But generally he's trying to explain it. And this is his source for explanation, which explains also, I might add, why sometimes he says it exactly the way he did, or it was written, and sometimes he draws a contrast between the way it was written and the way he is explaining 
but we'll get into that more. Another point we made last week is Paul made use of multiple versions. Paul had Greek versions of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. But he also had his Hebrew Old Testament, and you can tell, scholars can tell. Sometimes he's quoting from the Greek. Sometimes from one Greek version, sometimes from another Greek version. Sometimes he's translating the Hebrew into his own Greek. And some of us, it causes us to tremble and say, oh, this, 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 I'm concerned about this. Well, you shouldn't be. It makes sense that someone's going to try and explain their point using whichever translation or whichever version is most helpful on that point. The wealth of God's Word is not something where you can shoebox every verb and every noun into one simple meaning. It takes on breadth and depth. And Paul used it to make those points. So with that as background, and that as our foundation, now we can start building on it and answering two of the troublesome issues that we discussed last week. And the first one is, um, why is it when Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, sometimes, sometimes when he quotes... How do they match up? Well, sometimes they look basically the same. Okay? You can read it. Say, yeah, that's, I, I see how he got that. Sometimes they don't line up so good. You think, okay, there's a difference here. I'm not sure I'm knowing what... Yeah, I, I perceive some difference. And then sometimes they just seem to vary considerably. I mean, they might both have the tongue sticking out, but outside of that, you just don't feel like it's anything in common. Seem is underlined there for a reason. Seem is underlined for a reason. That's how it seems to us. Let's look at some of these passages. I go into more depth in your lesson, but ultimately what I'm doing here, Dale Hearn tells me the responsibility of a good Bible teacher is to make people go study on their own. So a lot of this is go study on your own. But let's look at a few to try and put them in the balance. We'll start with the ones that look basically the same. And for that, we shift over here. Um, as, as we consider Scripture, let's go to Romans. That's where I'm going to start. And I want to look at Romans 4, verse 18. And Paul's talking about how uh, through faith, Abraham realized his promises. And, and Paul says the following. He says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. You see that? Against hope. That he, Abraham, should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, you'll notice in the Bible that so shall your offspring be has got some quotation marks around it. You see that? Because Paul is there quoting the Old Testament. And the Bible that I've got here has in the margin, look at this margin space. It's got verses and, and you can look, like here is verse 18 right there. And it's got a little note for, Genesis, or I mean for Romans 4.18 that says, Cited from Genesis 15.5. Do you see that? Let me make that a little bit bigger. Cited, verse 18, from Genesis 15.5. So let's flip over to Genesis 15.5. And 
and see how well Paul cites. Genesis 15, 5, God's talking to Abram. Here we go. And we read, so shall your offspring be. That's pretty good, isn't it? He got that right. Here, I've, I've made a Xerox of the way Paul says it. Let's put them up side by side. Here's Paul. Paul says, see, this is the lawyer in me. I'm going to make sure he got it right. If not, when we get to heaven, I'm going to cross-examine him. Oh, lightning should strike. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. There. He got it right, didn't he? Okay, that's the kind I like. I can handle that kind of stuff. But let's look at some different passages. Let's go to the other one there and in and, and, and the same place. Let's go back to, to Romans 4 and go to the, the verse right before it. Romans 4, 17. Okay, in Romans 4, 17, it says, As it is written, you see where we are? I have made you the father of many nations. Hmm. 417, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Well, let's go see if that's how it's written. It's in Genesis 17.5 that Paul's quoting. Genesis 17.5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Multitude. Remember what he said in Romans? He said, here it is, get it up here. We'll compare him again. Romans, he said, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. Well, is it many or is it a multitude? Which is it? Okay, well, that may not bother you. You may be saying, that's one of those that kind of look, I mean, many, multitude, what's the difference? Actually, the Hebrew word that's translated multitude means, uh, uh, it comes from the word for roar, like roar of a crowd. And so it, it ultimately becomes a multitude, generally of people. It's not usually used of nations, though it is in this passage. But it really means many nations. So Paul's doing a good job the translators use multitude because that's what the Old Testament word generally means. And they use many because that's what Paul's New Testament word means. But I'll give you another secret. We can go and look at how Brother Paul actually wrote it. We can look at Brother Paul. And Brother Paul wrote in Greek. Y'all don't, don't grimace. Just drink your coffee and stay awake. Paul wrote in Greek. And here's where it says, uh, patera, pater, father. Okay, that, that pi, big capital pi, that's a P, A, T, E. That P looking thing's an R. Patera, father of many, polon, ethnon. We get ethnic from it, nations. Of many nations, uh, he will make you. Now, that's what Paul wrote in the Greek. You might be shocked to find out that if we go to the Greek 
version of the Old Testament. The Septuagint, which is what Paul's audience most likely would have had. We can read the same passage and it's going to be word for word identical with what Paul said. Patera, polon, ethnon. Now you're saying, yeah, I don't remember that. Okay, I put Paul right here next to it. Okay. Patera, patera. Polon, polon. And Paul continues on the next line. I've got to shift him over here. Ethnon, ethnon. You see those are the same? You see Tethika is the same? So Paul's quoting word for word from the Septuagint there. So that shouldn't be any kind of a problem to us. See, these are ones that, that look basically the same and they basically are the same. But what about the ones that don't line up so precisely? What about the ones that seem to vary considerably. What do we do with those? What, what's God trying to teach us that God would choose to do this with his word? Because don't get me wrong. Through study and intelligence, I hope, I have decided that this is God's inerrant word. This word is perfect and without error in what God wanted it to be. So my job is to try and understand what God wanted it to be. What it, and, and it's what it claims to be. What, it, what does this make? What claims do we have here? Because it's going to be dead on in its original writings for what it is. And so let's look at some of these other passages. Let's look at, say... Um, Romans 10.20. This is an interesting one. Romans 10.20, Paul writes, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now, Paul says, he's quoting Isaiah there, and we're going to take him at his word, and we're going to read through Isaiah, and we're going to come to Isaiah 65, verse 1. And when we do, we're going to read this. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. All right, let's put Paul back up here and compare him. Paul said it, I have been found. We'll give Paul a different color. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. Paul's done two things there. He's changed the tense. He's changed the tense from, I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. Paul says, past tense, I've been found. Isaiah was bold to say, I've been found. I've shown myself 
So one thing Paul does is he changes the tense. Second thing he does, he flips the order. See, Isaiah had, I was ready to be sought and I was ready to be found. Paul flips it. I've been found and I've shown myself. You see how he's flipped the order? You see how he's changed the tenses? Okay, so what do we do with something like this? Let me give you another example. And eh, maybe we don't have time. You, this is for you to study on your own. So instead of giving you another example, I'm going to deal with this passage. But I'm going to do it in this sense. We need to take a time out and stop thinking like 21st century people. Because if this passage bothers you or me, it's a sure indicator that we've got Paul at a computer. We, we need to understand, Paul didn't have any commas when he wrote. Paul didn't have any quote marks to go around things. Paul didn't have periods. Paul didn't even have spaces between his words. Let me show you the passage in, the, in, a, in an actual photographic copy of, uh, of, of Paul's writings that, that dates from about 350 A.D. Here's a photographic copy of that verse, much as it would have been done by Paul. Wrote in all capitals. The verse starts right here. Okay? Um, I could go through and make these letters out for you and help you see how they're there. But you're not going to find commas, you're not going to find periods, you're not going to find quotation marks. That's what we have. They didn't have that. We should not think that Paul is going to be writing like a 21st century person. He's not. He's going to write like the person. If he had written like that, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. They wouldn't have understood it. The real question is not, why is it different? The real question is, why does, I mean, the question is not, did Paul make a mistake? The question is, why did Paul make the changes? What are we to learn from Paul? What point is Paul trying to make? Paul knew how to quote it right. We saw that. But for some reason, Paul decided in that passage to change the verb tenses and flip it. Put the passage up here. Paul says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself. Isaiah says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Look, Isaiah speaks of the coming Gentile conversion. The whole point of the Isaiah 65 passage is the eagerness of God for the Gentile conversion. God is eager for the Gentiles to come. God is saying, I am ready to be sought. I'm ready to be found. I want the Gentiles to come to faith. Paul is writing to Gentiles and Jews, but the Gentiles have come to faith. What God was ready for has happened when Paul writes. It is past tense. The prophecy has come true. Isaiah was bold to say what he said, but his boldness paid off because the Romans themselves are proof 
of the prophecy God made. Now God has been found. God has shown himself. Why does he flip them? I suspect for emphasis. But this isn't Paul misquoting. We've got to get the word quote out of our minds. Who says Paul quotes anyway? Have you ever looked quote up in a good dictionary like Oxford? Kind of hard to read there. But that right there, that tells you the word quote comes from a medieval Latin term, quotare, to number. Okay, medieval Latin term. Think history for a moment. Go back to sixth grade, I think, is when we learned this. Medieval is after Paul. Paul didn't quote anybody. Quote wasn't a word for Paul. We talk about, hey, Paul misquoted. No, Paul wasn't quoting. What Paul's doing is showing from Old Testament Scripture, teaching his point. He's trying to explain that, yes, Gentiles have been brought in. It had been prophesied through Isaiah. God was eager for the Gentiles to come in, and it's happened. Just as Isaiah boldly proclaimed it would. See, quote as repeating a passage from, or a statement by, or quote as repeating or copying something out, it wasn't used that way until the 1600s. That's not what Paul's about. That's why he doesn't have quotation marks. There's no quotations. We've got to think like Paul thinks. So you might be saying, well, then why does Paul start out 23 times by saying it is written if it wasn't written just that way? Well, it is written is called an introductory phrase by scholars. It's the way that Paul says what I'm talking about now comes from Holy Scripture. My source for this is God. It is written is not Paul saying, this is precisely how it's worded. That's not what it is written means. When Paul says it is written, he means, let me tell you the source of this. This came from the mouth of the Lord. In Old Testament talk, it's kipi Adonai diber. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is from God. And so he goes, he's not quoting in the sense that we do. Oh, when he wants it precisely worded, he has no trouble doing it. But when he wants to make a point out of the scripture, he'll use the Old Testament scripture and change it to make the point he wants to make. And none of us should ever have our faith quizzed or challenged by the fact that, oh my, Paul seems to be really off in his quotes of the Old Testament. He's not quoting. I had somebody ask me, they say, well, should we be using the Septuagint since Paul quotes from it, if you want to use the word quote, Paul references from it three times for every time he references the Hebrew. So maybe we should be using the Septuagint. We should all be, you know, there, there's a book, the first Bible of the church, a plea for the Septuagint. go to the Hebrew Old Testament and the reason we go to the Hebrew Old Testament is because it's the original that God put there now God can work through the Septuagint God can work through the NIV God can work through the King James 
God can work through the living Bible. Though it's really hard for me to admit that because I don't like it. (laughs) But he can work through it. And if it's the verse I need to use it for because it illustrates a facet to that passage that God wanted us to understand better than my English standard version, then I'll swallow my pride and use it. The quotations don't always match up. Now let me tell you another problem. We don't always find the whoops, we don't always find the passage. I have a couple of them I was going to throw up here for you. Um, I think we don't really have time. So I may roll this into next week's lesson if you don't mind, because I do think it's worth looking at. There are five passages in the old in, in, in where Paul seems to be quoting scripture, it looks like, but it's You can't find it. And some scholars say, oh, he clearly had other scriptures than we have. Lost books of the Bible. Some scholars say, oh, he was having a a bad mental moment. He was not taking his ginkgo balboa or whatever that stuff is for your memory. Posh. There's some great answers that we'll look at next week. But this week, let's leave that aside and we'll roll it into next week. Our points for home. Point number one, it is written. 26 times Paul introduces an Old Testament quote, quotation. It is written. 26 times. And remember, we said Paul's indicating the source there. What's important to Paul is that we understand Paul is not coming up with this on his own. He's found this from God's mouth. Francis Schaeffer has a marvelous book. He is there and he is not silent. And it's marvelous in the title even because it sets out two core things that we need to know about God. Number one, God is there. Oh, you may ignore him if you choose. Oh, we may not believe in God, but he doesn't disappear because people don't believe in him. He's there. Whether you like him or not, he's there. And he is not silent. He has chosen to reveal himself. He has chosen to tell his story. He has chosen to relate to us who we are, where we came from, and where we're going, and how we get there. He is there and he is not silent. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do? La, 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 I'm not listening to him. Oh, that's real mature. I don't see him. I don't see God. Oh, that's real mature. I am a Christian. I love God. I go to church on Sundays. I attend the biblical literacy Bible class. And I can't wait to go eat lunch. It doesn't do anything if we don't recognize that we have a treasure that God has put. He's there and he's not silent. And his Holy Spirit ministers through this, not only in producing it, 
but in reproducing it in us. And we should be spending time in it. And we should be memorizing passages. And we should be making it our vocabulary. And it should change who we are. Because our God has spoken. And that's more important than Tim's phone calls to me. Sorry, Tim. But Tim would agree because he loves the Lord and understands the value of this word, has found comfort in it and instruction. Next, as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, this is Peter who calls the writings of Paul scripture in 2 Peter 3.16, the next verse. And he references the writings of our dear beloved brother Paul as scripture. Let's just think back for a minute. Go back to 2008 when we studied the life of Paul. Murderer, blasphemer, persecutor of the church. Had the church scared first time he shows up in Jerusalem. They think it's a big trick thing. Kind of standoffish. The challenge of the Acts 15 Jerusalem conference and is Paul messing with the, the, the church and Judaism and, and uh. And as Peter nears the end of his life, he sees our beloved brother Paul. Now let me ask you this. What are you letting God do in your life? What are you letting him do? Oh, you can line up all the ways you've messed up and all of the horrible things you've done. You can compare them to Paul. Maybe you beat Paul. Maybe you don't. I don't know how many people you've stoned because they love the Lord. But, you know, you, you line up yours. And God can speak into your life and totally change the course of your future. What will you let God do with your life? Last point. Peter says, don't distort the writings of Paul like uh, people distort uh, other scriptures. This is the part where he references it as other scriptures. I got the second Peter right on this slide. Paul's writings are not the simple musings of a church man. Paul's writings are not I had, a, I had a woman I was discussing theology with one time when I was in high school, and she told me, yeah, well, you got that from Paul. He, 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 that was Paul. You know, he was off. We all know he was off. And find it for me in the writings of Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't really write anything we have. He said a lot of things that got written down. But the writings of Paul are not the musings of a church man. It's not some random words. God chose Paul. And under God's divine influence, Paul produced works that the church has properly recognized as scripture. As early as Peter. Th these are holy writings from God for us. Let's relish next week digging in and not only seeing some question two, but I can't wait to get into question three with you and look at some of the interesting ways Paul interpreted the Old Testament. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask you to bless this class. I pray that you will continue to, to guide us. I thank you so much for this wonderful church where we have such a wonderful chance to learn, a chance to worship, 
a chance to, to sit under masterful preaching with uh, Pastor Fleming, Pastor Trammell, uh, the support they give this class, Lord. And I thank you for the support every person in here gives simply by coming and, and respectfully listening. It is my prayer that through your scriptures, we will grow to be more like you. That our lives will better reflect the mission and the purpose you have for us as we come under the stewardship of, of uh, responsibility that we have by, by having your, your word. Bless us as we go forth, Lord. Bring us back together next week in joy through Jesus our Lord. Amen.